Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. To the Mad Max Minute, where we talk about the real comic heroes in Mad Max to the Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 30, which begins with the compound dwellers getting into defensive positions, and it ends with the return of the Lord Humongous's Horde. And uh, it's the end of the week, it's Friday, which means we've got some fresh eyes joining us today, and this week, those eyes belong to none other than Travis Bow from the Real Comic Heroes podcast. Hey, Travis. Hello there. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about the Real Comic Heroes podcast, if you could. Absolutely. So we are a movie review podcast. When I say we, that's myself and my co-host Patrick. We review movies and we started with a big list of comic book movies. We added to that list pretty quickly when we kind of realized that we want to add other franchises and genres. So we added James Bond movies, Planet of the Apes, Star Trek, Star Wars. And uh, we started with Superman and the Mole Men from 1951. And we're working chronologically towards the present. So as of this recording, we are in the early 80s. We just uh, had frequent minute podcast guest uh, Ralph Atanasia on for our Ghostbusters episode. We've had Scott Corelli from Dueling Genre on with us for uh, Search for Spock. So a bunch of people from the uh, Movie by Minutes group have joined us. So we'll have to get you guys on at some point. But uh, yeah, so that's what we do. Yeah, it's a great listen. I downloaded the episode that you guys did about Mad Max from 1979. And I also downloaded the episode you guys did about this movie here specifically. And I've got to say a lot of the things that you guys brought up in those episodes rang pretty true for what we found about both of those movies. Oh, great. I wanted to test the waters a little bit and see what kind of fan you were sure. before we, we got talking I, I did my my homework to kind of dig into you a little bit there. Very cool. <laughs> hope, yeah. Yeah. Hope that wasn't weird. No, not at all. And and I'll I'll be the first to say, like, you know, for your uh, listeners, my fandom for Mad Max doesn't go back that far. I think I, I wanted to see Fury Road and I had never seen any Mad Max prior to that. So I went to the start and watched all of them, really dug the, the first two and then uh, saw Fury Road and loved it. So, yeah. yeah. Now, when you say you love the first two, then there was a pause. Oh, that was intentional. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't lose my place or anything. I, I... Good, because there was some subtext there, and I just wanted to make sure I was picking up on what you, you were putting down. You, you got it. You got it. <laughs> yeah, number three is a bit goofy. We'll uh, have plenty of time for that when we get to it down the road. Right. Yeah. But in the meantime, let's turn our focus back here to minute thirty because everyone is getting into position and is a little on edge because the horde is returning to the compound and before we talk about what we actually saw earlier this week we brought up a sort of deleted scene something that was in the script that was not included in the final film and it was when we were talking about stuff on monday there is a scene that wasn't included in the movie where max drives by and there are marauders camped out in the area around the compound and they signal to each other with little mirrors 
to show that something is happening back at the compound. And I kind of wish that had been kept in because it would explain why all of a sudden everyone is coming back to the compound as like one giant group. Yeah, the, the timing does seem quite convenient that within uh, two or three minutes of Max coming into the compound, the horde is all of a sudden back. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that would have been really nice to see. I guess I just assumed that it was they were punching in for the day. Like, <laughs> hey, it's it's 8.30. Let's, uh, let's go stir up the neighbors. Uh, but yeah, it would have been nice to see that kind of communication. We just kind of had to take on faith that the Lord Humongous had told the different parties and camps that were in position around the compound, okay, listen, if they send out scouts, we're going to go take them out and then, you know, make sure we rendezvous back here at like, I don't know, 1030 and we'll get brunch and then we'll go back and terrorize them. It, it just having scouts in place with the mirrors, it would have shown an extra level of competence and planning from the Lord Humongous. It would have added a something extra to him. Yeah. But then you got to imagine that Max's little perch up in the uh, the mountain would have been an ideal spot for, you know, for a scout. So it would be kind of weird that they wouldn't have uh, already been utilizing something like that. I just had a funny thought. So you've got Max and the gyro captain and dog. They're sitting up on top of their perch and all of a sudden a couple of marauders from Lord Humongous's horde pop by because they're looking for good scouting spots. And so Max is sitting there with binoculars and suddenly some guy standing right in front of him is like, what are you guys doing up here? We want this spot. And Max is like, well, too bad. It's my spot. You can't have it. And then we get like a little fight scene. That would have been a lot of fun. Yeah, it would have been. I could, yeah, totally see that, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> now I'm just picturing Luke uh, looking through these uh, binoculars, and then all of a sudden there's the, you know, Tuscan Raider, like, it, you know, interrupting the, his field of vision. Exactly. So, yeah. There you go. Okay. I love how everything just eventually <laughs> makes its way back to Star <laughs> back Wars. To Star Wars. Yeah. We can't help Wrong it. Show. <laughs> Star Wars Minute. <laughs> it's the kind of scene that I imagine that Max and Dog would do a lion share of the fighting and you'd have the gyro captain still chained up to the branch and he'd be like kind of doing little shadow boxing moves like yeah get him get him yeah (laughs) jabbing people with his little wooden spoon yeah (laughs) someone tries to grab him and he just wraps him on the knuckles and they're like oh yeah and that would have been a great scene to have uh, a little trust building between the gyro captain and max but yeah like someone is choking out max from behind and then gyro captain comes up with a stick and knocks the dude out and they get to have one of those you know meaningful looks between people (laughs) that just killed someone (laughs) right yeah yeah why didn't we get that movie i say it's because george miller didn't have us on hand to help with the script (laughs) (laughs) missed opportunities (laughs) what we do get with this scene is kind of a nice little vignette of people preparing defenses. The first shot of this minute is our boy Zeta up on the flamethrower, and it just so happens, today being Friday, October 13th, it is William Zappa's birthday. He is 69 today, so happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. So he's on a flamethrower, and when we first saw this flamethrower in action, it's posted right up against the gate. I think we criticized it because we considered it a very short-range weapon. Do you remember that, Julia? Yes. Yes. Well, I was curious about just how short range this thing was. And so I jumped on Wikipedia, the source of, you know, knowledge on the internet today. And they actually said that 
when you see flamethrowers in the media, typically they're shown as very short range weapons, but modern flamethrowers are actually like really good at getting distances. They could burn people up to 50 to 80 meters away. Wow. And I, I want to say that that's specifically like napalm flamethrowers, something that's a bit more, you know, gel based. Yeah. It's got a little bit more weight, so it gets a little more momentum. Hmm. And I mean, 50 to 80 meters, that's like 260 feet for us Americans here. That's that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But even later on in the movie, when we see Max jump on the flamethrower later on, he gets, you know, really good distance. I'd say somewhere in the ballpark of maybe not 50 meters, but maybe at least 50 feet. Yeah. All right. That's still respectable. That's mm. still a decent defensive weapon. Mm. It looks... And- few minutes ago when Max was observing them through his binoculars, it looked like they were having difficulty just getting it, you know, 15 feet, like it was fighting the wind just to produce that flame full kind of away when they were, like, when we saw them first being... uh bombarded yeah they really didn't do a very good job of showing off the full capabilities of the flamethrower when we were watching from the top of the ridge i'm wondering about flamethrowers though i would assume like different mixtures go into flamethrowers to produce different results Mm -hmm. well they don't necessarily have all a variety of supplies in there they have they have fuel they have oil refined into gasoline and its other byproducts so they may not have like the best stuff to make the the flamethrower do the best it can. Right. They're probably losing out on a lot of that distance because they're probably just pumping it full of just straight up gasoline. Yeah. And we haven't really gone over yet the refining process. No, at some point we're going to talk about the refining process. And I'm really hoping we actually get to talking about that at some point before we actually leave the compound. (laughs) We keep (laughs) saying we're going to do it. We really need to make sure and do that. All right, Julia, when we're prepping a minute that's specifically talking about gas, okay. remind me. Okay. <laughs> I will put it in my notes. We will do research on refining oil into gasoline. Now, Travis, do you happen to have all the information about how to refine gasoline? Are you holding uh, that up? Let me just flip through my notes here real quick. <laughs> I say, if you don't, that's fine. <laughs> but I figure I'd test the waters a little bit and see if I, see if I get lucky. Yeah. No, no such luck here today. Ah, uh, Oh, well, we'll get it next time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the opposite end of that gate, you got Flamethrower on one side. The other side, Virginia Hay, as the Warrior Woman, has gotten up there, and she is on this giant crossbow. And the, I, I, I don't want to say technical name. I think the historically colloquial name for it is a Scorpio or a Scorpion. Okay. An oversized crossbow that's, like, mounted down. And it's something that comes straight out of like roman siege weapons like it's an old design i'm glad uh i had crossbow written down as well but i knew that wasn't accurate Mm. but uh i'm glad uh, to have that information so yeah it's definitely the precursor to the crossbow because they started off they had the ballista which is kind of like the the two arms with the bound up ropes and then that kind of evolved into just a giant bow and it kind of looks like the bow portion of this scorpion is actually I think they're called leaf springs from the underside of like a large truck. Yeah. And so they've got that. Oh, you're right. That's that's exactly what they are. Secured with cables and whatnot. And she's got a ratcheting crank to 
pull the sled back so she can mount the bolts on there. I had a question about that ratcheting. Mm -hmm. Now, this setup reminded me, and also you, Rick, I know it's in your notes, about the episode of the Mythbusters show, the the search for the new Mythbusters. Yeah, I think they called it Mythbusters The Search. Yes, where they made one. Yeah, it was the A-Team special. They had to make cabbage shooters. Yes, so they (laughs) they made a giant crossbow scorpion thing that shot cabbage yeah and they used a crank and the major downside of the crank was how slow it was yes and the guy who was running it was very very tired yeah by the end of it they had a period of like three minutes or something to see how many cabbages they could launch and he was slowing down throughout the whole process and he was he was a buff guy they they put the right guy to do that job but it was still very very tiring mm. now virginia hay makes it look incredibly easy yeah <laughs> i think one of the major advantages to this scorpion is that it's a much shorter distance that the carriage has to travel between being what's the right word when a crossbow has been shot and the string is in the resting position i'm not quite sure but getting it from point a to point b (laughs) yeah so she probably doesn't have to crank it all that much when max comes in earlier i think he sees them as being fairly weak you know because he's looking around getting a kind of lay of the land and i I think it's a good bit of Max and the audience getting to see the tribe prepare to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. And they're not completely prepared, but in the first 10 seconds, we get to see uh, the gentleman you mentioned, uh, Zeta. Is yep. that what his name is? Okay. Like, he's ready to go. Uh, then we see Virginia Hay getting set up on the crossbow. And then we get to see the nervous guy, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> spinning around like he doesn't know where to be. I just really like the, because uh, with the music, they really ramp it up like each person is going to be ready to go you know as soon as you see him and then kind of the the third one that we get to see is him just (laughs) unsure yeah i like that you brought that up because from the top of the ridge the whole in the midst of the battle situation happening in the compound everything seemed very chaotic there didn't seem to be a lot of organization but here up close just like you said we get to see that there are elements to this group of people that are very well organized and you know you do have those people like the quiet man here uh david slingsby who's a bit more um my notes call him doofy <laughs> Oh, he may be not quite as battle ready as some of his compatriots. (laughs) I think this is a community where everybody has a role, at least one, if not several roles. And perhaps he was thrown into a a defensive position assignment that maybe he wasn't really cut out for. Mm -hmm. Well, and when Max was watching them earlier, uh, someone came off the wall. Yes. Uh, Someone definitely, he might be filling in a position that yesterday he wasn't in charge of. Right. This may be his first battle. Right. And he's just received news that someone that he cares about, we speculated about their relationship, we really didn't come up with a consensus, but someone that he cares about is dead. And immediately he has to go to battle. Yeah, I think it's kind of partly his unprocessed emotions, partly his general anxiety about situations is what's resulting in him being so um, futzy. Yeah. I think is the name. He played it really well. Yeah. That like spinning in a circle. I mean, that's a motion that I don't know about the two of you gentlemen, but I do that not on purpose. (laughs) You're not sure where the door is or you're not sure where you put something down. You just spin around until you (laughs) like get your bearings again. 
I do that so, at work all the time. So it's very relatable. Yeah, yeah. So as everyone is preparing, and I like that in the beginning part of this minute, we get to see three instances of people getting ready. And later on in the minute, we're going to see another in- instance of three people getting ready, like three shots. It's very symmetrical and good things come in threes. But after we see them, we get another shot of Max, who is chained to a railing, but he's not restricted in his movement. He's able to really hop up on that wall and get a better point of view. And I think it's a good example of him knowing when the right time is to do things because he's not causing trouble. He's just kind of moving to get a better view. Yeah, He recognizes that maybe this isn't the time to cause trouble. This is the time to just stay out of the way. <laughs> yes. In a few moments, we're going to get a view of everything we'll be able to see you know a good portion of the compound and the horde and you can see max down by the wall and he looks so close to the action and vulnerable (laughs) and he's not armed and if i were him i would never have climbed up on that platform well okay maybe i would have to see what was going on over the wall but then as soon as i saw i would have gotten down (laughs) and hid (laughs) against the tires Uh, see max is one of those guys that he has to have as much information as much intel as he can possibly get exactly he's that guy that i borrow this line from uh the movie ronin like he never walks into a place that he doesn't know how to walk out of and he's found himself in this situation where he's literally just handcuffed to a pipe and can't get out of that situation so he needs to see every angle you know get as much information as he can to see what he's going to do next or you know when his opportunity to to move is going to be so it's another one of those instances where you can take the badge off of the cop but you can't take the cop senses out of the guy you know what i mean yeah, yeah. i totally He's... botched that as far as like how you're supposed to say things like that but i got the <laughs> message we, across we get it yeah yeah <laughs> I'd, I'd make some sort of quip about me not having to be a wordsmith but this is a podcast and so... it's all about talking so <laughs> yes, you you are a wordsmith <laughs> i also like in the scene when max is looking over the wall we kind of turn around look at him get a really good look at his face and i'm not sure what you two read in his face but i read nothing i got nothing out of his face He was just like looking and observing and seeing and I didn't read worry or scared or defiant or prepared or anything. I got nothing out of his face. I definitely see around second 40 what you mean, and I think that's him observing and taking it all in. But towards the end of the minute, when we get another reaction shot from Max, it's basically like the last thing we see, I think. Yeah, uh, that reaction shot, it's a little different. It's different, yeah. Yeah. I, okay. he's... I wanted to make sure you weren't talking about yeah. that reaction shot <laughs> when I, I, I was you know, scrolling through the minute and I was, you know, but uh, yeah, I definitely see what you mean with the no reaction, but I think that's what I was kind of goes back to what I was talking about with him just taking it all in. So yeah, he's not giving anything away right there. Yeah. Right. And that's definitely like cop training. Yeah. All of this, it's all his cop training, (laughs) taking everything in, giving nothing away. So after we see Max kind of hop up we get this really cool crane shot that starts with the camera behind the wall and then the camera just lifts up the wall kind of falls away we get to see the warrior woman on the left side of the screen and then we see the expanse of the valley in front of us and i just look at it it's a really coolly composition shot and very interesting the way they technically did it and i'm completely screwing up all of my verbs and adjectives so just (laughs) 
don't pay any attention to that. But just believe me when I say that the way this shot is set up, it's really cool. Because when we were watching the Road War documentary, George Miller was talking about how they had this wide angle lens and this really cinematic aspect ratio. And he wanted to make sure that the camera movements that he used were really dynamic and interesting. And I think this is a really good instance of that, you know, using the the wall in the foreground is kind of a representation of the relative safety of the compound. And then we lift up and we get to see Virginia Hay being very tall and straight and defiant as a lot of these violent characters are rolling across the valley looking to do them harm. I really like the, the elements and how they come to get it together. Yeah. <laughs> Have you guys talked about Dean Semler, the uh, director of photography? We've mentioned him here and there. I don't think we've okay. talked extensively about him. Okay. I know one of his, like, yeah, probably more known for was uh, Dances, Dances with Wolves. So a lot of those wide sweeping vistas and uh, water world he did. Really? Yeah. Just kind of scrolling through his... Uh... He's got some interesting projects that he's worked on. Paul Blart Mall Cop 2. <laughs> I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Yeah. The Triple X movie. Mm. The one with... Um, Groot. Yeah. Uh, Vin Diesel. Yeah. Yes. Now, I've never seen the Triple X movie, but from what I understand of the trailers, it's very, like, extreme sports. Mm -hmm. So lots of, like, snowboarding down mountains and yeah. stuff like that. So that sounds right up his alley. A lot of dynamic would, shots. Yeah, yeah. he would make that look really, really good. Yeah. So um, this doesn't really fit in anywhere in particular in the minute, so I'll just throw it in here. Do they dress in light colors for a reason? We haven't really discussed that a lot yet okay we've only talked about it in so much as it's so that they are coded to be good people right yeah that's kind of what i was wondering and i'm not sure there's much beyond that okay the only reason I really thought about it, you know, much beyond just the representation of light versus dark, good versus evil, I would think in this desert climate, they'd want to wear dark just because, you know, I actually looked it up just to confirm because I'd always heard that it's actually better to wear dark colors in the desert, and it is. So you'd think with this tribe of, you know, nomads or you're trying to save every, save all your resources and things like that, that you'd want to be prepared for, you know, the weather. But then I started to think, you know, Papagallo was ex-military, at least from research I had done before. There was, I don't know if it's in the, it's not really in the movie, but from what I had read, he was ex-military. So yeah. I don't know if he's trying to make everyone dress in a sort of uniform because that's the world he knows or the world he comes from. So it could be a couple different reasons, but I just wondered if there was anything to make of the uh, the way they dress. I think there is a conversation to be had about the way that they dress. We haven't gotten there yet. Okay, yeah. Not sure when we will get there. Something to think about. Hmm. I like the idea that if he was, since he was ex-military, that he wants people to dress in uniform because that's how he knows to organize and to be a leader. Interesting fun fact about Papagallo. In Italian, Papagallo is a masculine gendered word and has several uh, definitions. The first one being parrot. The second one being wolf in a slang form, meaning like an amorous man. The third definition is very similar to the first, a person repeating others' words and phrases in an unpleasant way. And the number four definition of Papagallo is a bedpan, specifically for <laughs> urination. Interesting. <laughs> I'm trying to match one of those definitions to this character. None of them are good. Well, in the context of Papagallo in the screenplay, he's an oil executive. Okay. So you could say he's kind of a colorful bird that's used to saying a lot of 
grandiose and entertaining statements. So I feel like parrot is definitely the top most applicable definition that we can look at here. Okay. But I was just looking up to see where I could find the um, story of him being ex-military. I forget where I read it, if it was, I may have been on Wikipedia, which isn't always reliable. And I don't even know if it was anything definitive. It may have just been rumored, but there was also some connection between Papagallo and Lord Humongous, and mm. perhaps they served together, I remember reading. But then again, there, that's just something that I read but could be completely made up, so. You know, I feel like Curtis brought up that same thing. Okay. Like, I don't remember specifically because it was, like, a week ago, and not just a week ago in the terms of another Friday episode. I think it actually was, it was legitimately actually a week, a week ago. ago. But, uh, yeah, I got, I have, I've yet to find that one. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to the minute. <laughs> we love our tangents here. Speaking of Papagallo, the next thing we see in this minute is him kind of going up to this large central bridge in the middle of the compound. Pound, and he's pretty much just taking his position to keep an eye on things as they're happening. And we go from watching him walk up to the bridge to another shot kind of behind him. He's kind of off to our left, and then we can see the expanse again. And I found this shot specifically to be rather interesting because everyone in the compound, because they're in the foreground, is much larger than all of the vehicles and people in the horde. And I found it interesting from a viewer's position that the Horde is supposed to be this big threatening force that everyone is really worried about, but in the way they composed this shot, they look very small, and everyone on the quote-unquote good side looms very large. So I'm just wondering if you two think anything about that. Like, what is your take on it? I agree. I think the fact that the compound is one unit, the visuals of the wall and people standing on the wall make the compound one solid unit. While the horde, we can see the individual cars and vehicles. So on the big picture, yes, it's one large item. But since we can see it broken down into small items, it seems less intimidating. Hmm. So I think from this point of view, we are supposed to be on the compound side. We are supposed to think that they are strong enough to fight back against this horde. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we're supposed to see the compound as a well-defended unit because we have seen them repel this horde before, but we haven't seen what they're about to see. So I think it's kind of setting it up that, you know, yes, they are prepared, but we're about to see that they're not prepared for what's coming. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, I definitely see what you guys are saying. The whole, they've repelled them once, they can repel them again. That's definitely where we're standing at this point. And after we get this nice big shot of the whole compound, we get another quick set of... You know, Zeta, he pumps the flamethrower. We get a couple of compound dwellers. One's got a flaming arrow. Another one has a, I don't know if there's a technical name for it, but it's something big, heavy, and on fire that he's swinging around his head. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then we see Virginia turn the crank a couple more times to increase the tension on the crossbow. It's another yeah, set three of three shots. shots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's very satisfying. I mean, we love the number three. Yeah. We love seeing things in threes. So very satisfying shot. But what comes next, and Travis, you definitely <laughs> touched on this, they haven't seen anything like they're about to see before, because the thing that we see coming over that ridge is the Lord Humongous in his heavily modified truck, and he's got two captives strapped to the front of there, and one of them is 
screaming and pleading. He's yelling, hold your fire. He comes in peace for Christ's sakes. Hold your fire. And that's one of them. That's the larger one. And then the smaller one is leans over and he's like, shut up. So yeah. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this is broken victim and defiant victim. I'll let you decide which one is which. <laughs> but for ease of viewing, the large one on the left is played by Max Fairchild, who longtime listeners of the podcast will recognize as Benno from Mad Max. He is the broken victim, and he just doesn't seem to have emotionally handled his captivity well. (laughs) So we actually talked about Max Fairchild at length in our season one episode. So if you want, you can jump back and grab that because we went over his top four on IMB. We talked a little bit about his part in the marsupials, the howling three and his part in the getting of wisdom. One thing I don't think we mentioned during Mad Max is that he shows up in the blood of heroes slash the salute of the jugger as one of like the main bad guys. And it was a welcome surprise to see him pop up in one of our hiatus episodes. That's right. Was he older? He was older. Salute of the Jugger was 1989, so he was at least eight eight years or so older. Okay. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, he pops up as Gonzo, one of the <laughs> rival Juggers that they have to fight in the Red City, and he's he's a good guy in that movie. As for the other victim, the defiant victim, he was played by Tyler Coppin, and Tyler Coppin, I think wrote his own biography on IMDb. (laughs) Well, if you want it done right, you do it yourself. Yeah. His best known four films begins with Hacksaw Ridge, which is actually, I think, the newest production that we've ever had on a list of known four movies talking about an actor. Hmm. Because Hacksaw Ridge was 2016. It was just this past year. He plays Lynchburg Doctor. And then number two is Road Warrior, where he's Defiant Victim. And he also appeared in 2014's Predestination, where he played played Dr. Heinlein, and he was in 1993's Sniper, where he played a character named Rapoli. I don't believe Dr. Heinlein or Rapoli are necessarily large roles for him, but, you know, he's in them and he stands out, I guess. So his mini-biography, like I said, I think he wrote it himself. He says, born in Roseville, California, so he's an American, very much like Mel Gibson. He attended high school in America, and then when he was in his late teens, his family picked up and moved to Australia, where he went to NIDA, the National Institute for Dramatic Art in Sydney. Apparently, he has performed at most of the major theaters in Australia, including a self-written solo show at the Sydney Opera House. So good job there, Tyler. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I have to admit that if you had told me that a couple of months ago, I would have been like seriously impressed that he had a performance at the Sydney Opera House. But then I went to the Sydney Opera House website and like most large theaters, it has several theaters inside (laughs) and they show all sorts of shows, Mm -hmm. all sorts of plays, music, dance, comedy, everything goes there and it's not a terribly expensive place to buy tickets to go see stuff it's because it's so visually iconic to the world we assume it's a grander thing yeah (laughs) and it's much more like you know a large theater that we would find in boston yeah you look at the sweeping lines of the sydney opera house and you imagine it's this large cavernous theater (laughs) and it's this giant stage and thousands of people come to and flock it's like that scene in fifth element where everyone comes to see the (laughs) diva pava laguna yeah right and it's this amazing thing it's like no there are side theaters and you can go yeah there's theaters of various sizes do smaller productions (laughs) yeah so i i found that very interesting that it's 
you know, it's a normal theater. You could almost be so bold as to sit on the steps outside the Sydney Opera House, drum on a bucket for an hour or two and say, oh, yeah, I, I performed <laughs> at the Sydney, Sydney Opera House. Yeah. <laughs> Travis, have you actually seen Hacksaw Ridge by any chance? I have not, no. Yeah, neither have I. My yeah, mom has. I've heard great things. Yeah, my mom And your mom has? Loved it. What um, kind of movie is it? It is a, it's a war picture. World War II oh. based on a oh. true story film directed by Mel Gibson. Yes. It's the guy who was a conscientious objector, that guy? Yep. It's the story yeah. of American Army medic Desmond T. Doss, who served during the Battle of Okinawa. He was vehemently opposed to actually killing anybody, but through his work as an army medic, he became the first man in American history to receive the Medal of Honor without firing a single shot. Yeah, that's the kind of movie your mom would watch. Yeah. I was aware of him before uh, because of one of my favorite podcasts that I talk about all the time, Stuff You Missed in History class did an episode on him mm, sometime in the last two years i don't remember exactly when so when i heard that movie was coming out i was like that's awesome because it's a really good story and but i haven't seen the movie yet <laughs> <laughs> so another movie that tyler coppin was in predestination it was written and directed by michael and peter spierig the Spirig Brothers, and it stars Ethan Hawke, Sarah Snook, and Noah Tyler. Predestination is kind of a... I don't want to say it's a remake of Time Cop, but <laughs> it is about a cop who travels through time. I think the story differs slightly from the, the Van Damme movie, but apparently it's a Time Cop who is very close to retirement, and he just needs to find that one last criminal. So there's that. And then the last movie on the list, Sniper, it's an action drama thriller directed by Luis Losa, written by Michael Frost Beckner and Crash Leyland. It stars Tom Berenger and Billy Zane. Yes, that Billy Zane. <laughs> this was pre The Phantom and Titanic, but post Back to the Future parts one and two. Wait, Billy Zane was nice. in Back to the Future? Yeah. Yeah. Where? He's one of Biff's uh, oh. uh, gang. Okay, okay, I gotcha. I sometimes like to think that through some quirk of time travel that the Billy Zane from Titanic is the same Billy Zane from Back to the Future and Doc Brown just kind of dropped him off in the 1900s. He's just hiding out, yeah. 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 That makes sense. That, that, that fits. Because he's such a jerk in that movie. Yeah. So as far as Sniper is concerned, you've got Tom Berenger. He plays Thomas Beckett. He's a U.S. Marine hunting terrorists or something in the Panamanian jungle. And he gets a new partner in Billy Zane who plays Richard Miller, and apparently Miller is more of an office type of agent where Beckett is more of a field agent, so they butt heads there, but they have to fight an enemy sniper. Is this a, bu a buddy cop movie? <laughs> Sounds um, like a real Tango and Cash situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a buddy sniper movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, now, keep in mind, Sniper from 1993 should not be confused with Semyon Timoshenko's Sniper from 1932 or Dante Lamb's The Sniper from 2009 or Mode Pierre Andre's sniper from 2014. <laughs> all right. Yeah, got to keep all the snipers straight. Yeah. yeah. When all these movies are just called sniper, you know, it can get confusing. Yeah. The sniper universe is uh, is really a tricky one to remember which ones come first. I'd say with such a large spread of release times and seemingly international sources, I can't imagine trying to keep that universe straight. The least they could do is number them. Is all right, I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I get it, by the fifth one, you go back and you just call it Sniper again. That's what Fast and Furious has done. But yeah. you know, I mean, you replace the E in Sniper with yeah. a five. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> 
So after we see these victims lashed to the front of the Humongous's wagon, it's then that we get a panning shot across the horde, and we can sit here and we can count the different scouts that were picked up. Which, four, four vehicles Which left I had to do like six times, because <laughs> I could not for the life of me find the sixth one. Yeah, it's kind of a Where's Waldo situation. <laughs> he's, he's, he's tucked in there. <laughs> yeah. So the first one, there's kind of a buggy at the very left of the screen yep. as we first start the pan. That's the one I couldn't find. So he's lashed to the top of there. We get two more on the modified ute. One is kind of in the grill guard, yeah. and the other one is tied up that's over the, the roof. One, yeah, that's the one I didn't spot right away. It was the one in the grill. Yeah, that one's kind of lazy. Like, they just stuffed him in the grill. Like, everybody else is strapped in some dramatic way. Most of them are, like, upside down, draped over the front window area of the car. Mm-hmm. And then he's just, like, stuffed in the they front grill. tucked him in there, made sure yeah. he didn't shake around too much. Yeah. <laughs> then, of course, you've got the two on the front of the Humongous's wagon. And then the final scout is tied down to the red muscle car with the bat painted on the bonnet. And, yeah, most of them are, like, tied down, like, upside down. And uh, not very comfortable position no. at all. Certainly not. And... It's after that panning shot, that's where we get the second shot of Max and the mechanic is kind of lifted up into position. Yeah, so that... and the curmudgeon's there too, right? Exactly. So we end this minute kind of on the three of them. I loved this shot because three people who seem very, very different, Max and mechanic and the curmudgeon, they have a very similar reaction to this view of seeing what the Horde has done to these scouts. And it's... I think disbelief and a certain level of shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it, I think it draws them closer together. It's a stunning uh, display. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, seeing them approach, it is, I, I've never seen it before in any other movie. I mean, we've seen, um, you know, human shields and, and things like that, but there's just something about this that's very unique. And yeah, I mean, I like the last thing we see in this minute is Max witnessing the oncoming horde. Cause like I said before, it looks like he's in awe, you know, it's not where he wanted to be. He intended to get the gas, get out of there before he was locked into this place. And yeah. he had to deal with this, you know, head on. But, <laughs> you know, something that we, trying to remember, you know, we've never really seen Mad Max have to band together with anybody. So you know, I think right now it feels like he's in there with them for sure. He's not against them at this moment. So, yeah, I think he's definitely found himself in a situation where it's not like he can solely rely on himself anymore. He's kind of at their mercy. And so, yeah. you can kind of see the wheels turning in his head you know if the scouts weren't able to get through the horde how is he going to get through the horde how is he going to convince the people in the compound to let him go the expression on his face in this last shot is definitely not quite as stoic as the one in the first shot that we got of him certainly not yeah this view is dramatic enough to actually draw some emotion out of him yeah and that's where we leave off the minute yeah perfect little amount of tension to leave it with that's a great place to end yeah as far as how to end a week i think we kind of lucked out yeah, with how yeah, they timed this, nice. <laughs> that we get to end the week with the horde arriving, and then most of next week we get to have the little Punch and Judy show with the Toady and Wes <laughs> and the Humongous and everything like that. Yep, but it'll be fun. But we can talk about that later because right now it's time for our end of the week recap to take a look at where we came from, what we saw and learned this week, and to give Travis an opportunity to weigh in on some of those things that he wasn't here for. Sounds good. So we started off this week with a rather rocky introduction. Max, with Nathan in the car, drove across the valley and met the people living in 
inside the compound. He approached the gate, got out to a very cautious welcome. It's understandable that they wouldn't trust him. He looks like a marauder. He looks like he's part of the horde. It doesn't help that his car is an old police vehicle, and there's a faction in within the horde made up of other police vehicles. Oh, yeah. So that probably didn't help at all. <laughs> so as the gate was opened, we get... A lot of the compound dwellers rushing out. They grab Nathan, put him on a stretcher, and then Max is frisked and led inside to be questioned by Papagallo. I think they uh, they must reuse the uh, feral child's wig in the next movie for Max. Oh, good point. <laughs> That's right, because we get to more officially meet the feral child. We did that earlier this week. That's yes, right. Yes, we did. <laughs> oh my God. I guess feral kid is what he's credited as. But... A, yep. These days are starting to blend together, I swear. <laughs> And it's been, I mean, he disappeared so quickly. Like, well, he was yeah. around for a few minutes of this week, but then once things turned bad, he was gone. <laughs> yeah. He hid so fast. So now it feels like it's been a while since we've seen him. Yeah. Yeah. We don't really get any of the feral kid today because mm. yesterday he kind of dove into a, a rabbit hole and disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> so as Max was getting interrogated by Papagallo, we had the quiet man come up and interrupt him. How rude. But, you know, he was there to inquire after the other scouts. And after Max insisted that Papagallo talk to Nathan, it was revealed that Nathan had actually died from his injuries. And seeing the matter as done with, Papagallo ordered Max kicked out. Get rid of him. Do we know the nature of the relationship between Nathan and the older lady that we see? We speculated on that a little bit. I personally think that she may be his mother. Okay. Or at least like an aunt. Yeah, perhaps like an aunt. Okay. Some uh, kind of relation. Yeah. And if not by blood, then by... Experience. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. By experience. Okay. I'm not sure if it's because there are so few characters in this movie. When he dies and she's mourning him, you really feel it. Especially after what we see them go through the previously week you know what max and the gyro captain witnessed happened to them mm -hmm. aside from rage uh, there aren't too many emotions that we get to see in this movie but her grieving it's i, I think it just makes it way more effective yeah moira cloud really, really just yeah lays it on thick yeah yeah so once max has been ordered to be kicked out of the compound we spin around to look at the gate and we see that the mechanic and his assistants are pulling the black on black into the camp and then they kind of rub it in Max's face that they were able to disable his booby traps so yeah. quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I really dig the mechanic in this, his harness, and he's a fun character to watch, you know, throughout this whole movie. Yeah. I completely I'm, agree. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to when we get to see more of him. Yeah. I mean, especially the first thing he says to Max is he gives him a funny new nickname of Treasure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gotta yeah. hand it to you, Treasure. A real piece I of history. I didn't catch that, yeah. <laughs> Last of the V8s. Oh, he's, he's great. Especially when he taps on the tanks and then Dog gets really angry angry and starts pulling yeah. at his legs and he's just kind of sitting there in his in his swing just kind of like like what do you what do you what do you what are you yeah. doing dog i can't feel that <laughs> stop quit it out it's like he's more annoyed than than upset or anything like that yeah. so we get to see max break away from his captors and calm dog and everyone's pulling at everybody else it's very chaotic yesterday but it's a nice little uh little bit of character develop development that you don't get a lot of with max mm. uh, just him being protective of dog it's it's really nice yeah i like the two of them because we, we've gotten to see earlier in this movie instances of them working together or just being on the same wavelength. And it's nice to see Max, you know, essentially put himself at risk. Yeah. To calm the dog and make sure that the dog is safe. The, this little tussle between Max and the mechanics assistant and everybody else is really a good 
precursor to the flurry that happens once the scouts see that the horde is returning because everyone goes from shouting and pulling to shouting and running in all sorts of different directions i think we talked about how the scene was starting to implode and then with the news of the horde returning the scene kind of exploded and everyone went separate directions i just wrote down all the reaction shots because it's just everyone is (laughs) losing their composure and even like down to the animals they're scattering and going crazy so there's a character in the screenplay that isn't featured in the movie someone is supposed to be the butcher of the camp and they are just about to start butchering a rabbit but as the camp flies into a fury they have to drop their knife and the rabbit on the butcher block runs away and Ah. so that rabbit that we saw running around yesterday in the script would have just come from a cutting board (laughs) so that's why it was running so frantically because it was about to get butchered that makes that shot make sense (laughs) yeah yeah i just figure feral kid is out there like I, i imagine it's his job to catch rabbits you know outside the compound He's used to going into their holes and rooting them out. Yeah, setting up tiny little traps and just... (laughs) Using that boomerang of his, which he's going to get to do next week. Oh, boy, is he. Yeah, that's going to be a fun one. Travis, is there much else that you would like to say about this minute or this week? I'm good. Oh, I did have... uh, I reached out to Patrick since he was unable to to join us on this episode. Mm -hmm. And he said that he really liked the gang's entrance with the people attached to the vehicles. It shows the psychos have some brains and they know the oil barons are soft and sentimental oh that is good that's good yeah I'm glad he sent that to you because yeah (laughs) yeah, because that's something I definitely missed that whole them being smart enough to play the mind games right yep I think we're meant to assume this is the first time based on all the reactions yeah that this is the first time they've played this kind of card Mm -hmm. yeah I'll chalk that one up to the strategic mind of the Lord Humongous more so than just the the different (laughs) yeah (laughs) crazy named faction leaders Travis, if people wanted to listen to more of you, how would they go about doing that? The easiest way is just to search Real Comic Heroes, and that's real with two E's. We're pretty easy to find. If you search Real Comic Heroes in iTunes, Stitcher, you know, whatever podcast app you you use, that's where you'll find us. You can find our website. We are at realpodcastnetwork.com. And over there, we've got the list of all the movies we plan to do, because like I said, we're moving chronologically towards the present. We've laid out every movie that we intend to do, and then uh, we update that list with what we've rated each movie that we've done so far and what's coming up next and that kind of thing so that's where you can find us and then we're uh, at real comic heroes on twitter and facebook instagram pretty much everywhere else so we're pretty easy to find if you are interested in giving real comic heroes podcast a try jump right on there they've already got the episodes for mad max and the road warrior on there you can listen to those as a good introductory thing and then jump back to that first episode pick up from there or even just pick out the specific movies that you want to listen to travis and patrick are great pair to listen to so i highly recommend it thank you The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com click on the support link at the top of the page and check out our patreon to help us keep the tanks full thank you for joining us for minute 30 of the road warrior have a great weekend